Good morning. I've been reminded this week of what an exhilarating and terrifying privilege it is to preach the Word of God. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. In just a moment, we'll read some verses toward the end of that chapter. I don't know about you, but I have been thoroughly encouraged by Pastor Kim's series on Ephesians to be aware of the great spiritual blessings and benefits that we have as believers in Christ to be chosen, to be adopted, to be sealed by the Holy Spirit, to have the assurance that our salvation does not depend on our good works or, or our, on our performance, but rather on the amazing grace that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. There is, however, the opposite side of the gospel, and today uh, we look at that, the drama of discipleship. The old uh, adage goes that a preacher's responsibility is twofold, to comfort the afflicted and also to afflict the comfortable. So let us read this text from Matthew 16, and I think you'll be able to discern which of those two responsibilities uh, God has asked me to perform today. Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, if we read this passage, if we hear it, and it does not bother us, then perhaps we need to read it again. I will read verses 24 and 25 again. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Let's pray. 
God, this is uh, your message today. It's not mine. I would have chosen a much easier, breezier passage. I ask that we may listen to your word today as if you are here because you are. May we listen as if you have a desire and power to change us because you do. May we listen as if your word is living and active and powerful and practical because it is. And forbid, Lord, that we leave this place unfazed by your glory or unmoved by your word, unchanged by your spirit, less aware of how amazing you are. Amen. So you want to be a disciple. Are you sure you want to be a disciple? Martin Luther said, a religion, a faith that gives nothing, costs nothing, suffers nothing, is worth exactly that. Nothing. The hymn writer put it this way, Oh, how the thousands came when the bread was multiplied. Oh, how the hosannas rang at their king's triumphal ride. And as long as the miracles flowed like wine, they called him wonderful. They came to dine. But when they realized the true purpose of Christ coming into this world to suffer and to die, John records in John 6, 66, that's easy to remember, 666, one of the most pessimistic and sad verses in the entire Bible. It says, from that time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Once they understood what it meant to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, they turned back and slithered away. So we asked the question this morning, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Discipleship simply means to learn by following. To learn by following. In other words, it involves our whole life cycle from conversion to death. Eugene Peterson put it this way, discipleship is when what is believed in the heart has demonstrable consequences in daily life. In other words, living out what we know to be true. Decisions have consequences. Let's look at five D words this morning that describe the dynamic drama of discipleship. In verse 24, it says, if anyone would, if anyone wills to come after me. So that has to do with desire, a deep desire, an all-consuming passion. When uh, I was a young kid growing up in Pennsylvania, my favorite basketball team was the Philadelphia 76ers. And uh, my greatest hero 
was a seven-foot basketball player back in the days when seven-footers were rare. His name was Wilt the Stilt, Chamberlain. You may remember him. He was uh, an exceptional basketball player. No one could stop him because of his height and his strength and his grace. He once scored 100 points all by himself in an NBA basketball game, something no one has done since and probably never will. He was unstoppable, except for one other basketball player and one other team. Bill Russell and the hated Boston Celtics. It was so frustrating and exasperating for me, I could not figure out, it was very maddening to try and figure out why Bill Russell so dominated Will Chamberlain. He wasn't as tall, he wasn't as strong, he wasn't as graceful, and yet he and the Boston Celtics frequently, almost always, got the best of Will Chamberlain and the Philadelphia 76ers. Until I really sat down and thought about it, and it came down to one word. The word desire. Because Bill Russell and the Boston Celtics would play defense like madmen. They would dive after loose balls. Like they were possessed, they would crash the boards. Desire makes all the difference. It's the foundation of the Christian life. And if you're sitting here today and say, you know, I don't know if I really have that will, that desire to follow Jesus Christ like he asked me to do. Well, I refer you to a statement of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, where he says, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So if you don't find that desire, if you don't find that will in yourself, that's okay. You can pray this prayer because it is God who will give you the will, God who will give you the desire. We don't have to whip it up ourselves. The second D word that Jesus refers to here in Matthew 16 is the word denial. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. That means you have precisely what it says. You have to say no to yourself. You have to deny your own natural wishes and desires. Well, what is it that we are to deny? We are to deny and say no to our fallen sinful self. Anything that competes with Christ as our Lord, anything that cools our affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not only saying no to obviously evil or bad things, but it is often saying no to even good things, but things that distract us and cool our affection for the Lord Jesus Christ, our desire to go our own way, our desire for comfort and ease, our uh, desire to hang on to anger and lack of forgiveness, pride, 
lust, laziness. What word did Jesus use more than any other to describe his relationship to his disciples? It is a seven-letter word beginning with the letter K. The word is kingdom. He came proclaiming the kingdom. And in order to have a kingdom, what do you need? Well, you need two things. You need a king and you need subjects. The king commands and the subjects obey. And so we pray, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. What has to happen in order for God's kingdom and his rule to come? Well, my kingdom has to go. I have to say no to my own desires and wishes. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. So we ask the question, well, how is God's will done in heaven? I believe it's done completely. I believe it's done immediately. I believe it's done enthusiastically, willingly, and joyously. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And thirdly, he must take up his cross. That is a decision. Now, the original hearers of these words knew exactly what a cross was all about because they had seen men walking through the city and out to a place of execution carrying a cross. And they knew that those people were not coming back alive. And so Jesus says, you must take up your cross. You must say no to yourself and yes to the cross. T.R. Glover said the Lord promised his disciples three things. First, that they would be entirely fearless. Oh, that's great. Secondly, that they would be absurdly happy. Well, that's cool. So far, so good. The third thing Jesus promised his disciples was that they would always be in trouble. Whoops. Not so good. Saying yes to the burden that Christ wants you to share will involve trouble and tribulation. If you have a vision and it scares you, then that's probably one indication that it certainly is of God. Jesus says in another place, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, but only if you yield to it. If we resist his yoke, his burden, then it becomes heavy, it becomes an obligation. Would we rather not feed the hungry? Would we rather not watch out for the poor and the widows? Would we not rather have no meetings that we have to go to? There are more fun things to do than that. Would we rather not comfort the grieving because we don't know what to say? We would rather not witness to the unsaved. We'd rather talk about the Packers or the weather. The dynamic and irresistible decision to say yes to God's will. 
One man put it this way, when love beckons you, follow him, even though his ways are hard and steep. And when his wings enfold you, yield to him, even though the sword hidden among his pinions may wound you. And when he speaks to you, believe in him, even though his voice may shatter your own dreams. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That has to do with direction. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. No turning back. Adoniram Judson was one of the earliest Baptist missionaries that we know of. The country of Burma was on his heart, and he spent 37 years there with exactly one furlough. The first six years of his ministry yielded exactly zero converts. And yet he endured Burma's heat and backward wilderness. He endured torture and imprisonment. And he admitted that he never saw a ship sail out of the harbor without wishing to jump on it and go back home. His wife's health deteriorated and he had to put her on a ship back home. He knew that he wouldn't see her for at least two years. And he wrote in his diary, if we could find some quiet resting place on earth where we could spend the rest of our days in peace, he goes on and on, but he ends that day's diary by writing this, life is short. Millions of Burmese are perishing without Christ, and I am the only person on earth who has learned their language well enough to tell them of the salvation through Jesus Christ. That is a man with direction who is committed to following Christ no matter the cost. Now we come to verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? When we lose our life, when we deny ourselves and say no to all that is selfish and evil within us, and say yes to God, and to his will, what happens? We discover our divine purpose. We discover joy beyond description, peace beyond understanding, and love beyond explanation. The exhilarating freedom to love God with all we are, mind, body, soul, heart, and strength. To be, as Paul invites us to be, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. 
So self-denial for the sake of God and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ leads to self-discovery. All that God desires and plans for us to be before the creation of the earth. I want to close with a simple story about a woman who took Matthew chapter 16 very seriously. The year is 1954. Edith and Carl Taylor live in a nice, quiet neighborhood in the suburbs of Hartford, Connecticut. Edith thinks she is the luckiest woman in the world, especially when she thinks of Carl, a loving, thoughtful, considerate husband. He's one in a million. They are believers, and they take their faith very seriously. The day comes when Carl's job requires him to travel to Japan for six months. Carl writes daily, telling of the excitement and adventure of living in such a strange foreign land. His letters assure Edith of his love for her and how much he misses her. After three months, however, the letters begin to come less frequently. Edith writes it off to Carl's busyness and dedication to his job. Then finally, the letters quit coming entirely. Three months later, the fateful letter arrives. Dear Edith, I'm sorry to inform you that we have been secretly divorced and I have married a Japanese girl named Aiko. I wish you well. With a grieving heart, Edith falls to her knees, crying out to God, saying, I am yours, God. I do not understand the road you are asking me to travel, the cross you are asking me to bear. So tell me what to do. And the answer comes to her inaudibly, but very clearly. Keep loving Carl and pray for him and even pray for Aiko. She does exactly that through the months and years that pass, even when Carl writes telling that Aiko has given birth to a daughter and then two years later another daughter. She sends cards and gifts to them on each of their birthdays. Then a final letter rises from Carl saying, I am ill, dying of cancer. Our resources are almost gone. I'm so concerned about Aiko and the girls. Two months later, Edith learns that Carl indeed has died. Edith continues praying for Aiko and the two children. Late one night, Edith sits down at her desk and composes a letter. My dear Aiko, I do not understand God's ways or his will, but I have determined to do his will, no matter how difficult and unlikely. So I am asking if you and your girls would give me the joy and privilege of coming to live with me. Thirteen days later, Edith drives to Logan International Airport in Boston she gets out of her car, knees trembling so much she can barely walk. 
A cold sweat breaks out as she enters the terminal and hears this announcement. Flight 694 from Tokyo now arriving at gate A10. She stands there shaking with fear and apprehension but with a deep, warm, indescribable peace in her heart. Then there she is, a slight, frail little woman with two girls clinging to her legs. Their eyes meet and then, as if floating on air, they rush to each other, embracing as the tears and emotions break loose. And Edith thinks to herself, I prayed for Carl to return, and he has, in the form of this girl he loved and these two precious children he fathered. Thank you, God, for loving me and helping me to love like you. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will find it. C.S. Lewis says there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say, my will be done, and those who say, God, thy will be done. Let's pray. God, when you call us You call us to a journey of discipleship. You call us to continually say no to ourselves and say yes to you. That happens when we receive your salvation, but it happens every day. And while we may never be called on to deny ourselves to the extent that Edith Taylor did. God, every morning when we open our eyes, cause us to recognize that you are calling us to follow you. And Lord, I would not presume to tell anyone in this congregation what that means for them. But I ask that each of us may be open to the leading of your Spirit no matter how unreasonable, no matter how humanly ridiculous what you're asking us to do seems. God, we love you, and we know that we are loved and we are secure because of the amazing love that you have for us. Free us, O God, to love you and to love others for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.